Good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Nadia Kwasi, Head of Research at AFCA. So I'll be the moderator of, um, of the panel. So we will be talking about the future of um, food agriculture in Africa, and we'll explore the growth drivers of uh, the industry maturation and also the challenges associated with uh, the efficiency and effectiveness of the industry on the continent. So before starting the conversation, I will leave the floor to the panelists to introduce themselves. Thanks, Nadia. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Stuart Bradley, um, one of the founders and managing partner of Matisa. Um, we're a, a food agri sector focused private equity fund manager. Um, we fully deployed our first fund between 2011, that's when we first closed that. Um, we've recently final closed our second fund. We're about halfway through that fund, um, $143 million. Uh, we've done three investments to date, another two that uh, we're busy closing at the moment. Um, and yeah, good to be here this afternoon to share some of the insights that we've learned in the sector. Our first garden we made, we're about to leave our 13th investment. We closed that in uh, 2018, and we recently had the initial closing for our, our subsequent fund. And prior to our first one, we made several investments on a global basis. Happy to be here. Thank you, Hello. I think we have Jennifer Barn online. Yes. Good afternoon, Hi, everybody. Hello. Good afternoon. And greetings from Nairobi. It's a pity I cannot be with you there, but very happy to be engaged in this discussion. My name is Jennifer Barn. I'm the head of partnerships at AGRA and the acting managing director of the AGRF. The AGRF is the largest convening on agriculture on the continent, and we're also managing an agriculture room that builds a pipeline of $5 billion um, investment opportunities across the continent. Thank you, Jennifer. So I think we can start with a first general question for all the panelists. Um, Africa has some of the world's um, largest tract of uncultivated uh, arable uh, land, accounting for 60% of the global total according to ADP. So how can investors harness uh, commercial opportunities emerging in Africa? Maybe we start. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, perhaps it's worth giving our story a little bit in terms of how we've changed our investment focus between our first and second fund. I mean, actually, our first fund, uh, the, the, the nature of investors we raised into that fund, DFIs, required us to invest into primary ag. So we did do primary agriculture investments. Um, actually, we've morphed um, in terms of our second fund. Um, in that we're now, we're investing across the food value chains. So we're investing in inputs to ag um, and downstream. But we're not doing direct uh, primary agriculture investments anymore in our current funds. Um, we found it quite challenging, actually, from a private equity point of view and from a, a private equity model. Um, you know, the nature of most of our funds are sort of 10-year funds, five-year investment period, and therefore a five- to seven-year holding period. And we found that quite tricky, therefore, to get into primary agriculture, given that a lot of primary ag in Africa tends to be quite early stage, greenfield um, development. Um, and therefore, trying to develop, um, build out a farm, make it profitable within a five, seven year investment horizon is quite challenging and successfully exit it. Um, so we've tended actually to shy away um, from pure standalone primary ag. 
What we do see an opportunity, though, is, is around integrated opportunities. So we've got some investments, for example, around poultry, um, where we've backwardly integrated uh, and built farms behind the poultry operation um, so that we can we can supply uh, feeds, etc., um, to poultry um, and get the benefit of the margins, but also get the benefit of security of feed supply. Um, and I'm going to sort of pause there, uh, yeah. if you've just got anything, and then pick it up again. Yeah, and for us, you know, the opportunity really is is even more fundamental than what Stuart was just describing. Uh, when you look at the continent, you, you see most of the people um, continue to rely on agriculture for their livelihood and primarily at a subsistence level. Uh, and when you look at how countries tend to develop, um, most countries tend to take a traditional path towards becoming more, more developed economically, and that path starts with uh, gaining, increasing agriculture productivity uh, to a point where you no longer you're productive enough, where you no longer need most of your labor force to be involved in the ag sector. Um, productivity levels uh, and you know crop uh, overall crop uh, efficiency has increased in most parts of the world. But when you look at productivity in Africa, it's for the most part trailing where many parts of the world were. You know, depending on the on the country, decades uh, even more. Uh, and so our focus was how do we uh, invest to help increase productivity, help increase efficiency, and help the, these countries move along the development curve. I think what Stuart said is, is accurate about the, the challenges with primary agriculture, but I think there are ways you can do it through vertical integration, and we've made a couple of investments um, that sort of highlight that, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about those later. But I, the, I think the fundamental issue is that it's easy to get uh, enamored with innovation and other things that are going on uh, with respect to the role technology can play in society, but without addressing the fundamental issue of how do we feed ourselves, um, I don't think we're going to move forward very far. I mean, I don't know of any instance where someone has died as a result of internet shortage outage or telecom outage. But if you can't feed your population, people will die and people will not advance. And so that's that's why it's such an important issue. Good. Thank you. Jennifer? We can't hear you. You'll mute, maybe. Can you hear me properly now? Okay. Yes. Yes, without echoes? Okay, good. Okay. No, I really, really like the last comment. Um, um, and I'm, I'm probably going to retreat it today, if you allow me. Um, um, there are not a lot of people who died of internet shortage, but when it comes to food shortage, definitely yes. So, so a couple of things. Um, we, we, do, we do see um, opportunities in the growth of, of, of the agriculture sector. And as Agra, we're working um, specifically with, with uh, primary agriculture, but along the value chains. But we do realize also that there are quite a lot of challenges as to why this might not be an attractive investment opportunity. And from our perspective, there are really a couple of things that are critical. Collaborative effort, specifically around a couple of things, right? Risk, innovation, ensuring inclusivity, and also addressing systems. We need a systemic approach in order to really elevate agriculture to a different level. And we've been working on several things in that respect, from syndicated investments, credit guarantees, but specifically also working on the farmer level. If you do not fix the issues around agriculture productivity, I think we will have challenges to elevate the rest of the sector and the value chain. About the challenges, do you think that resource and capital demand are compatible with the private equity asset class? 
challenging. I mean, you know, the demands of private equity are, you know, the returns in terms of the requirements that are put on us um, in terms of our LPs and how we raise our capital um, does make it very tricky, I think, as I've said, to invest into primary ag, which is why we've sort of moved away from that and we're trying to tackle it in other ways in terms of vertical integration upstream. So, you know, we're investing into inputs to ag um, and it's a sector that we really like and that does, I think, as you just said, in terms of we can impact small groups, et cetera, around that. Um, but I mean, yeah, some of the challenges, if you just standalone primary ag that we've experienced in prior investments is, um, you know, the nature of the commodity. So, you know, you're a price taker unless you're beneficiating the product. So unless you're, you know, you've got a poultry business and you're putting soya, maize, etc., um, feeding a chicken, producing an egg or producing broilers. Um, if you're just selling at the end of the day, maize, soya, you're very much a price taker. Um, and, and you're at the vagaries of whatever's happening in the markets. Which can be a real challenge. You've got all sorts of other challenges in terms of, um, in, in, you know, in terms of climate, um, soil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there are. It's a difficult sector, I would say, um, to crack, um, which is why we've approached it in a different way. Yeah, it's not all one. It's definitely a challenge. We're working on small parts of land. We've invested on small inputs, uh, and as a result, the outcome is not not where it needs to be. Uh, after you leave the farm. Depending on the crop or, or, or protein, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of it is, is lost due to improper handling post harvest. Uh, and so you're seeing a significant percentage of everything that's grown being lost and not even consumed by, by people. And then the final challenge is around distribution and pricing, uh, making sure that one, you want to pay the farmer a price that allows them to, to, to cover their expenses and. and Purchase our disposable income to purchase other things, but you want to make it affordable to the consumer. Uh, and how do you do that? When, you know, the supply chain and the, the value chain to get that product to market is so broken. Uh, you know, one of the companies uh, that's getting a lot of um, uh, you know acclaim for what they like what they did was in cutting out middlemen was Twita, uh, and Twita was like we can make this value chain a lot more efficient uh, by getting. Um, making sure that the crop goes from farm to the end retailer as quickly as possible, rather than having to go to multiple uh, people in the, in the value chain that aren't really adding much value. Um, so those are just some of the challenges, I'm sure um, there are others. Thank you. Hello. Jennifer, maybe you would like to add something? Yes, absolutely. In terms of some of the challenges experienced with, with agriculture. And I think, you know, a few things. I always tell um, um, our stakeholders and other actors uh, that agriculture, um, it, it's one of the most complex and also highly risk value chains, very diverse with so many different products um, and different profiles, etc. across the world. But, um, and so, so in that Respect aspect as well. A, a one size fits all solution doesn't necessarily work, even if you have investments side by side, just targeting different regions or um, um, uh, different crops, even. So, so that level of complexity, I would like to add something to what was already shared with regards to challenges. One of the things that we've seen is also just information, inside data, and expertise. Also, when it comes to investors, um, um, we are in an environment where there is not enough sufficient information, even for policymakers and other actors like ourselves, to make sound decisions uh, consistently long term, let alone if, it is, if, if you want to invest. So one of the things that I think is also critical is how do we work collectively? 
to ensure that we share knowledge and information. That is one. And secondly, that we also build capacity uh, of both investors as well as investees in terms of what the opportunities are and what type of financial structures are actually required. Thank you, Jennifer. So a question on your specific strategies, maybe Euler. I know that you implemented a strategy of vertical integration uh, into your uh, investment uh, process. So why having operational um, control from production to distribution is so important? It was really um, in order to ensure that you, you can actually get the product that you want or when you need it um, at the quality that you need it. So I'll give the example of Tomato Joss which is an investment um, we made in, in Nigeria. Oh. Backstory, everyone knows Nigeria, uh, large uh, consumer of tomato paste, uh, but most of that paste is imported. Um, so the problem Tomato Joss was trying to solve was how can we make tomato paste locally? Well, it, it comes down to growing tomatoes at a high enough rate so that a processor doesn't need to coordinate with 20,000 farmers to get the raw materials that they need. Oh. Ideally, you want to be working with 50, maybe 100 max farmers. Um, but Nigeria, because yields are so low, uh, 10 times lower than the, the global average, and 30 times lower than the, the average in the US and other, in Mexico and other high growing tomato growing regions, um, they needed to increase the yields on the, at the farm level. So they had to actually farm themselves uh, in order to prove that you could achieve those yields and then start working with farmers to show them how they could grow crops in order to achieve those yields. Once they were able to get the volumes that they needed, they could build a factory and actually have enough inventory to, to fill that factory with paste. The problem is, so famously, um, uh, Sunny Dangote, the Dangote group built a tomato processing factory without having access to raw materials. They thought they could buy those raw materials from farmers when they harvested it. Come harvest time, the, the price of tomatoes was higher than they were willing to pay, and they couldn't get access to all the materials that they needed and their factory is run i mean no one really knows for sure but certainly not the, the amount of time days that they wanted it to to run when they built it so that just gives you a, a sense of how how much insight and how much of a role you need to play in sourcing your raw materials in a space like that um, and then getting it to market i mean fortunately there are distributors um, investors in, in the company that are able to help help them get their product to market but that's not the case for a company like like Victory Farms, another company we invested in in Kenya. And because of that, they needed to maintain a cold chain to ensure that the fish Victory Farm grows to Apia and sells it in Kenya and has expanded into Rwanda. Um, they decided that they needed to build um, the distribution distribution network and set up outlets to sell fish to market women so that they could maintain the cold chain. When they tried to use an outside uh, third-party provider um, that had refrigerated trucks, the driver would turn on the turn off the refrigeration midway uh, between uh, Lake Victoria and Nairobi, so they they could save on fuel. You just can't have that. A lot of their fish would, would spoil as a result of that. So oh. as they said, well, we need to start transporting our fish ourselves to ensure that we can maintain that culture. So that just shows you how you need to be uh, present in multiple stages, whereas. In other markets where you can trust your, your counterparties uh, more or uh, there's a, a little more uh, infrastructure built around it, you don't have that same sort of problem. So that's that's why the, the vertical integration was, was much more important in these, in these companies. Okay, thank you. So talking about the new development, we know that Africa is rapidly uh, modernizing, but the industry is still heavily depending on traditional methods. So maybe a question for you, um, Stuart. 
So how can technology be harnessed to optimize um, the industry uh, incremental yields? Yeah, um, I guess a couple of examples that we've got. Um, so we've got an existing investment at the moment um, called FES, which is an agri-equipment business, but it's a solutions company. So it started out when we bought it, it was really selling tractors um, and servicing, massive servicing tractors. Um, and it had contracts as well with some of the large commercial farmers and sugar estates um, doing sort of land prep, et cetera. What we did quite recently, I guess, in the last two years is we built a lab. So we spent about $2 million on a, on a high-tech lab in Malawi. Um, so we can now do soil and leaf analysis and sampling for farmers. And then we branched further now in that we've now got drone technology. Um, so we're using these very big drones, actually, kind of like the size of this platform almost. Um, so we're using drones now for um, crop protection, so crop spraying. Um, so we use those. Um, and, and the other big one that's come through now at the moment is there's some bigger drones now that have come on the market. We're able to now use the drones for fertilizer application. Um, so what we call variable rate fertilizer application. And I think this is really relevant at the moment, I guess, with what's happening in Ukraine, et cetera, and what we're seeing happening with fertilizer prices globally is that we now, in a combination of using our technology in the lab and being able to understand what's happening in a field in terms of yields and analyzing the leaves and analyzing the soils, we can see where the deficiencies are in a particular part of the field. And therefore, we can now fly a drone in and literally just put the right amount of fertilizer and the right type of fertilizer in the right place in the field. Whereas the old traditional days was a farmer would have a tractor and they'd have a fertilizer spreader on the back and they'd just spray fertilizer across the whole, whole field. Um, we can now be very precise in terms of where we put fertilizer onto fields. So, you know, the benefit is um, huge impact in terms of cost savings for the farmer um, because they're not spreading fertilizer everywhere. Um, much better for the environment in terms of wastage, et cetera. And also we're putting the right fertilizer in the right places to improve yields. Um, so I guess that's just one area where we found technology um, improve. I think the other one actually playing into the smallholder again is we've exited the business now, but we had an investment um, in a natural fertilizer business uh, called Meridian, which operated across Mozambique, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia. Um, we invested in that in 2014, exited 2019. Um, but in Malawi, um, and it's a distributor fertilizer, so it imports NP and K, blends, granulates, and then distributes to the country. Um, one of the programs in Malawi is that the donors provide the Malawi government with uh, money for smallholders for fertilizer. Um, and we in turn, or smallholders in turn, were given vouchers by the government. We then come to our stores and we get one bag of fertilizer for the season. But it was one size fits all. So it was the same bag that had been formulated back in the 1960s. Um, and the formulation had never changed. No matter what you were growing, whether it was maize or groundnuts and where you were growing it, soil types, you got the same bag of fertilizer every year. So we used, we had a TA facility in our first fund. Um, and so through our TA program, we ran a pilot project around 30 of our stores and we mapped the soils around those stores um, for the smallholders. Um, and we then formulated six bespoke fertilizers, depending on what a smallholder was growing or crop and where they were growing it. And then we ran trial crops because you couldn't just convince a smallholder who'd been using the same bag of fertilizer year in, year out uh, to bring their voucher and now take a gamble on a brand new type of fertilizer that we formulated. So we ran trial plots for smallholders, trained them in fertilizer application, um, and we improve, improved yields, depending on what crop they were growing, anything between 15% and 30% for the same bag of fertilizer, but just a better formulation, um, which was fantastic. We trained about 15,000 smallholders, 70% of those were women. But again, 
quite basic technology, really, just you know, improving you know fertilizer formulations for smallholders um, to improve their livelihoods. Curious, do you think you could have done that without the TA facility? No, not initially, uh, because we, you know, the, the, the management team of the business didn't believe in it. So we ran it as a pilot project with TA. I mean, we spent about eight hundred thousand dollars on the program. Um, it was linked up with the University of Columbia in the US uh, to help us formulate. But the, the the interesting side is is that we ran the thirty pilot projects. We then, uh, once that was over, actually management adopted it, and, and we then developed it out to ninety of our stores out of one hundred and ten stores we had. It became an, its own business unit, and then we exited that investment to a group called Marvin um, out of Saudi Arabia. We did well on the exit, but they actually bought that business unit as well and attributed value to that business unit. So it's just a wonderful example of how you can use TA um, to demonstrate um, the opportunity. But it might have been tricky initially to get management to go and spend $800,000 rather than spending it more on warehousing and logistics. Um, Nadia, can I, can I just add something to this? Yes, this is actually quite interesting. Um, my question to um, actually Euler and Stuart would be, would you see from a private equity investor perspective a need for complementary partners who could actually support you in delivering some of the programs that um, you've just described, Stuart? Just to give you an example, um, as Agra says AGRF, we're working with millions of farmers and deploying programs across 11 countries. And one of the things that we, for example, done uh, with Africa Improved Foods, um, $50 million investment of DSM and CDC in Rwanda, is that they were facing a problem of aflatoxin in their main supply chain. And it's not their core business to basically build pharma capacity and deal with all kinds of quality issues. But that's where Agra and similar institutions partnered to develop programs that would actually address this issue so that their supply was actually safe, so to say. Um, and, and we've been reaching out to investors, companies alike, saying that what we can bring to the table is skill and reach and actually working on the back end of the value chain. What experience do you have? And, and is there a need in the investment community for partners like that? It would be loved. I think these companies would really benefit from it. I think um, it would reduce the time it takes to get um, a product to scale and uh, in market uh, and profitable. Um, so, you know, Tomato Joss has spent years working with, trying to work with smallholder farmers, training them on how to grow crops that they could have spent, you know, doing something else. Uh, if someone was working with those farmers, helping them, it would be hugely beneficial. Um, and right now, Victory Farms is setting up, uh, so their hatchery, they've been, you know, raising the hatchlings themselves, but they're trying to train um, the people that live in the beach communities around their farm how to grow hatchlings so that they can sell it to them. And if those people are able to do it in a, in a manner that is um, um, at a high quality uh, and at the volume that they need, they would gladly pay for that. And that, that you know, helps um, provide those people with jobs that are going to pay them well. Uh, it brings them into what Victory Farms is building. And so it's less likely that you're going to you know, suffer theft or have any sort of bad community relations as a result of people being envious of the growth of this company without them benefiting from it. So I think those sort of partnerships would be hugely beneficial. Yeah, I mean, Jen, the same here as well. I mean, that example I gave you on Meridian, I mean, we were lucky in our first fund in that we did raise a TA facility alongside the fund as well. 
Um, and I think we were fortunate in terms of the nature of some of our DFI investors um, that came into the fund and they were able to unlock from the EU uh, it was 10 million euros of TA funding, which was dedicated to the fund. And through that, we actually we recruited a TA manager, so TechnoServe, which I guess many of you know. So we had TechnoServe as a dedicated in-house resource. We had sort of a five-person team from TechnoServe focus solely on us and our investments um, and putting projects together around our portfolio um, and did some really great work. You know, fast forward to today, um, I think it's got more challenging to raise those sorts of TA facilities. A lot of the DFIs have TA, but they don't necessarily put them into just one facility. Um, it's kind of a project by project basis. Um, so therefore, we don't have the luxury anymore of having like a TechnoServe fully dedicated in-house to do these things. And they did it really well at Meridian in that project I, I described. So absolutely, um, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities around our portfolio where we could do things together. But I think, as Julia says, we need help on that. You know, we've got finite resources. Um, you know, all of us are sort of modest in terms of our size as fund managers, you know, living on our management fee. And, and we've got a job to do in terms of deploying into sort of eight investments and, and driving those exits. But if there's stuff that we can do around our portfolio, absolutely. Um, so it's a shame you're not here. We can swap a business card, but we'll... <laughs> We'll email you afterwards because um, it would be good to connect. No, absolutely. Um, very open and willing to, to work because I really think that we need to set up different partnerships and collaborative efforts if we want to scale um, any investment in this market. Thank you, Jennifer. So let's talk about the impact of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, what change have the pandemic induced on the agricultural su supply chain? Maybe a question for you, Jennifer. Yeah, sure. COVID-19 pandemic. Um, interesting. Um, I, I think across the board, uh, we, we can agree that the response from the continent was sometimes more proactive and straightforward than we saw in the rest of the world. And I think it's also because government realized that we, we don't necessarily have the strongest economic and also agriculture systems. So a quick response and also based on the expertise is, is relevant. We've seen different types of impacts. The impact was not necessarily on the productivity level. It was more on the allocation and the supply of food overall. And I think an, an, a more longer term impact is, of course, the impact on just commodity prices and, and, and costs and logistics, etc. Um, we've seen um, um, as our SMEs, we conducted surveys throughout and a number of our SMEs have reported that they had to cease operations and turn around their business. But there was some sort of an agility also across the continent that people switched to other types of opportunities to like. These are some of the interesting things that we also saw. An increase in urgency and awareness that these crises, whether it's COVID and now at this point in time, the Ukraine crisis, continue to amplify some of the weaknesses that we have across systems. So we definitely saw a heightened urgency amongst governments to address some of the challenges like our $40 billion import bill for food that we still have as an African continent. We also saw more innovation in e-commerce and ag tech that is actually creating an opportunity for longer term investments as well and also increased automation um and and as i said there, there is also an awareness that we have to pump more investments and funding and have more partnerships in the agriculture sector because it was COVID, it's climate change it's not a war crisis next year it will be something else thank you jennifer Stuart, you want to add something yeah i'm going to quote 
year again, actually, because uh, it was such a good one. I mean, I mean, the point of COVID nineteen was everybody kept eating. You know, people didn't stop. Um, so you know, it didn't change in terms of food demand. Um, if anything, I guess what we saw going through was that at least our businesses didn't suffer from shutdowns. Um, so we all stayed open. All our businesses had to stay open because they were so critical. I think just some of the other stuff that we've seen coming out of that to add to Jennifer, I guess, is you know supply chains are still badly disrupted. Um, so whether it be businesses that we're involved in that are exporting um, goods out of Africa, um, citrus, etc., been some real challenges around that. Um, you know, so yeah, it's great that these are export businesses and dollar generating, but there's been some real challenges. And then some of our equipment businesses, um, just supply of new equipment or spare parts um, to keep fleets, etc., going, um, has really lengthened at the moment, uh, becoming quite a challenging for those businesses. Yeah. yeah, we have one portfolio company in Rwanda that a bulk of their, their, their buyers are hotels, lodges, and airlines. And so <laughs> you can imagine when, when COVID hit and all these lockdowns were like, oh man, this is going to be disastrous. Uh, fortunately, they were able to you know, find export uh, partners that bought a lot of their, their, their uh, inventory. And so revenue was down, I think, 25%. Uh, in 2020 versus what we thought it'd probably be, <laughs> like nothing. Um, and then the supply chain challenges, companies that were importing uh, raw materials, fertilizer, feed, um, that was really disrupted and it had a, 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 an impact on their operations. But by and large, most of these companies were able to weather those storms and actually, in some ways, benefited from it. So um, in Kenya, most of the tilapia that's consumed uh, in the market is imported from China, uh, and as a result of the large jams and imports in China and, and lockdown restrictions, we saw a decline in the import of tilapia, and so as a result, Victim Farms gained market share because they were able to supply the market with, with fish and maintain prices. Um, so you know it was a it was a double edged sword, but fortunately the the benefit side was sharper uh, than the, the, the con side, and most companies were didn't die as a result. I agree with that. I mean, yeah, we've got a, a business in South Africa actually uh, imports food ingredients and crop chemicals, etc. And yeah, we took a decision actually because a lot of the products coming out of China, etc., which we're then blending um, and, and, and formulating in South Africa, is we just went long on raw material. Um, and we heavily invest in working capital, um, and we bought market share effectively through that process. But not even we bought market share, but we bought good margins as well because nobody else could supply. So that business, I mean, actually, that business has achieved its sort of five-year target in year two um, against us in investment plan, which we wouldn't have had otherwise. So there were silver linings that if you were sharp, you could pick up. Thank you. So let's talk about the hot um, topic um, about the climate change. Italy. So we know that your portfolio, you have over 25% of your portfolio uh, involved in the agriculture sector. So how um, have the founder you back um, targeting, adjusting to climate uh, induced shocks? Yeah, it's a big concern. Um, and <laughs> some of these companies uh, are able to manage it a lot better than others um, okay. with uh, so Tomato Joss has open field farming in northern Nigeria, uh, you know, drought conditions, uh, diseases, pests are all going to affect them in, in different ways. Uh, fortunately, they're on a, a reservoir that has water, they can irrigate their land, uh, and so that, that helps, but they also have to take precautions to 
uh, protect themselves against some of the other other climate change risks that they're going to face. And it's an evolving process. You don't know how changes are going to affect northern Nigeria versus southern Nigeria. Uh, you don't know um, how climate change is going to affect Lake Victoria. So they've seen um, the temperature of water actually decline. That could uh, decrease. That could lead to you know adverse effects on the fish. And so you have to constantly monitor the conditions uh, and you know make changes to the effect that you know, to the extent that you can. But it's not it's not something you can actively say we're going to take this step uh, to avoid this from happening. It's beyond your control. Um, and so a lot of these 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 companies are thinking about it. They're they're engaging with with folks who have a lot more technical knowledge around how to adjust to climate change and trying to make changes to the extent they encounter these conditions. But it's, it's just such a, an unknown risk um, that you, you just have to be aware that that risk is out there and be ready to make the, the appropriate changes when, when you encounter them. Thank you. I mean, we've, in terms of some of the impacts we've had from it, yeah, I mean, it, our equipment business, uh, you know, I guess we're selling more sort of irrigation systems um, just to give farmers that sort of certainty and, and you know, in sense, rather than waiting for weather patterns. So that's, there's been some benefits there. Um, but then, you know, Malawi got absolutely devastated um, over the last few months with two cyclones that went through. Um, and, and we're heavily reliant on the sugar industry there. We do a lot of work um, in terms of land prep, et cetera, um, for the sugar sector. And, you know, just flooded um, in terms of getting into those fields, et cetera. It's created other opportunities of work we can do. But yeah, I think you've got to. Re- yeah, there's going to be shocks every year. There's going to be stuffs going to happen, which, like you say, you just can't predict. Not, not uh, climate related, but have you guys done anything innovative on the financing side to make the irrigation more affordable? Um, not. We haven't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an ag services businesses. We haven't yet. We'd like to sort of drop anything around that. Be interested to chat. But yeah, sure. Definitely. So sun culture probably less. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Because that is a problem for farmers, it's making it more affordable. It's a big issue. Jennifer? Yes, uh, Nadia and colleagues, if I can be blunt, if you want to read a horror story, um, it should be any document that is talking about the impact of climate change on Africa's agriculture systems in the coming five to 10 years. Um, That should really keep all of us awake. Because once again, anything that was already weak and vulnerable will only be amplified by climate change, being it drought, being it floods, being it additional pests, um, etc. And for me, and this is also the type of work we do to Agra, I, I really want to emphasize we only have eight harvests till 2030. And in these eight harvests, we have to make a difference for this continent. Um, and, and we do know that, that uh, on the African continent, we're not the major contributors to the problem, but the major impact is here, and specifically on our farmers being it smallholders or others. So there are a couple of critical things that we really have to do. We have to accelerate innovation that can help us to address climate change um, um, impact on the, on the continent, being it technology, being it innovation also in finance in terms of how we manage risk, insurance, etc. Innovation in terms of how we address and work on data, in terms of weather patterns, etc. And also the whole decision making of key actors, being it companies or governments. So for us, that is really, really a, a heightened issue. And of course, we have to be supportive also to governments with regards to policies, etc. We are working with our farmers um, um, and partners to make sure that we also get different types of seeds um, um, to our, our, our 
um, uh, farmers that are more drought resistant um, and things like that. So it's really a broad spectrum of interventions that is required across the continent. And some of it will require almost like a Marshall Plan approach, like the green wall that we have to build across the Sahara. And I, I really think that in the coming 12 months, this has to be on the table in every discussion about economic development on this continent. Because once the impact is full-fledged, it will be also very challenging to keep other sectors afloat. Thank you, Jennifer. So I think we can stop here and take some questions from the audience if we have some. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I have a question for the participants. You mentioned the TA facility that you raised for your first fund. What was the size of it? Can you elaborate a little bit on the way you structured that facility and how easy it was to raise it from, from LPs? Was it from your existing LPs or from other sources? Yeah, so, um, I mean, look, we put it together. I mean, actually, it was a, that, that fund was, was a, a blended finance fund, actually, which we didn't know it was blended finance at the time because it was before anybody was saying blended finance. But we had a structure around the actual fund itself in terms of giving commercial investors different returns uh, than other some of the softer investors, so giving preferential returns to commercial investors. And then we had the TA facility. Um, it was really because we had um, AFD and Proparco um, with, well, kind of lead sponsor investors, LPs into the fund. And given that their relationship with the European Union, they were able to raise this TA facility with us. So it was 15 million euros that we raised out of the EU of grant funding. Um, so it was structured outside of the fund separately. So it didn't come through the fund at all. It could only go into uh, projects around the fund. Um, I think we must have done, I don't know, something like 80 projects around all our portfolio companies. Um, so we had a, I'm just trying to think what we did, you know, up in Sierra Leone, we had a palm oil business, uh, a, a, an old mill that we rebuilt with uh, 30,000 hectares of smallholders around us buying us with fruit. Um, and we did a whole process in terms of helping them to replant and fund replanting, helping in terms of mapping as to how we could collect the fruit from the smallholders. Um, so we did projects around that. Uh, it, so, yeah, I mean, it was TechnoServe would then design a project. They'd come with us on the due diligence when we looked at a new investment. And they'd look to design specific TA projects that we could do around that portfolio company. Um, and, and they would then fund uh, consultants effectively to come in and design those projects and run them for a one or two year period with the idea that they would ultimately be adopted by the portfolio company um, or they might be just a one-off project. But it was, yeah, I mean, we were fortunate that, you know, we managed to raise that scale of money from the EU. Um, I think it's a lot more challenging these days The actual size of the fund, uh, the, the fund size was $243 million. Uh, so, yeah. It's an impressive fund. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, uh, you know, we were, we were heavily backed by a couple of uh, DFI LPs um, who sort of anchored us. Thank you. Thank you for your attention and big thanks to Stuart, Euler and Jennifer for the varied contributions. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.